Introduction to Ghosts by Henrik Ibsen. Translated by William Archer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Introduction by William Archer. Read by Christine G. The winter of 1879-80 Ibsen spent in Munich, and the greater part of the summer of 1880 at the Garden. November 1880 saw him back in Rome, and he passed the summer of 1881 at Sorrento. There, fourteen years earlier, he had written the last acts of Per Gint. There he now wrote, or at any rate completed, Jengangene, or Ghosts. It was published in December 1881, after he had returned to Rome. On December 22nd, he wrote to Ludwig Passage, one of his German translators. My new play has now appeared, and has occasioned a terrible uproar in the Scandinavian press. Every day I receive letters and newspaper articles, decrying or praising it. I consider it utterly impossible that any German theatre will accept the play at present. I hardly believe that they will dare to play it in the Scandinavian countries for some time to come. How rightly he judged, we shall see anon. In the newspapers there was far more obliquy than praise. Two men, however, stood by him from the first. Björnson, from whom he had been practically estranged ever since the League of Youth, and Georg Brandes. The latter published an article in which he declared, I quote from memory, that the play might or might not be Ibsen's greatest work, but that it was certainly his noblest deed. It was, doubtless, in acknowledgment of this article that Ibsen wrote to Brandes on January 3rd, 1882. Yesterday I had the great pleasure of receiving your brilliantly clear and so warmly appreciative review of Ghosts. All who read your article must, it seems to me, have their eyes opened to what I meant by my new book, assuming, that is, that they have any wish to see it. For I cannot get rid of the impression that a very large number of the false interpretations which have appeared in the newspapers are the work of people who know better. In Norway, however, I am willing to believe that the stultification has in most cases been unintentional, and the reason is not far to seek. In that country a great many of the critics are theologians, more or less disguised. And these gentlemen are, as a rule, quite unable to write rationally about creative literature. That enfeeblement of judgment which, at least in the case of the average man, is an inevitable consequence of prolonged occupation with theological studies, betrays itself more especially in the judging of human character, human actions, and human motives. Practical business judgment, on the other hand, does not suffer so much from studies of this order. Therefore, the reverend gentlemen are very often excellent members of local boards, but they are unquestionably our worst critics. This passage is interesting as showing clearly the point of view from which Ibsen conceived the character of Mandish. In the next paragraph of the same letter he discusses the attitude of the so-called liberal press, but as the paragraph contains the germ of an enemy of the people, it may most fittingly be quoted in the introduction to that play. Three days later, January 6th, Ibsen wrote to Skandorf, the Danish novelist. 
I was quite prepared for the hubbub. If certain of our Scandinavian reviews have no talent for anything else, they have an unquestionable talent for thoroughly misunderstanding and misinterpreting those authors whose books they undertake to judge. They endeavour to make me responsible for the opinions which certain of the personages of my drama express. And yet there is not in the whole book a single opinion, a single utterance, which can be laid to the count of the author. I took good care to avoid this. The very method, the order of technique which imposes its form upon the play, forbids the author to appear in the speeches of his characters. My object was to make the reader feel that he was going through a piece of real experience, and nothing could more effectually prevent such an impression than the intrusion of the author's private opinions into the dialogue. Do they imagine at home that I am so inexpert in the theory of drama as not to know this? Of course I know it, and act accordingly. In no other play that I have written is the author so external to the action, so entirely absent from it, as in this last one. They say, he continued, that the book preaches nihilism. Not at all. It is not concerned to preach anything whatsoever. It merely points to the ferment of nihilism going on under the surface, at home as elsewhere. A pastor mandish will always go with one or other Mrs. Alving to revolt, and just because she is a woman, she will, when once she has begun, go to the utmost extremes. Towards the end of January, Ibsen wrote from Rome to Olaf Skavlan. These last weeks have brought me a wealth of experiences, lessons, and discoveries. I, of course, foresaw that my new play would call forth a howl from the camp of the stagnationists, and for this I care no more than for the barking of a pack of chained dogs. But the pusillanimity which I have observed among the so-called liberals has given me cause for reflection. The very day after my play was published, the Dagblad rushed out a hurriedly written article, evidently designed to purge itself of all suspicion of complicity in my work. This was entirely unnecessary. I myself am responsible for what I write, I and no one else. I cannot possibly embarrass any party, for to no party do I belong. I stand, like a solitary franc-tireur, at the outpost, and fight for my own hand. The only man in Norway who has stood up freely, frankly, and courageously for me is Björnson. It is just like him. He has, in truth, a great kingly soul, and I shall never forget his action in this matter. One more quotation completes the history of these stirring January days, as written by Ibsen himself. It occurs in a letter to a Danish journalist, Otto Barchenius. It may well be, the poet writes, that the play is in several respects rather daring, but it seemed to me that the time had come for moving some boundary posts, and this was an undertaking for which a man of the older generation, like myself, was better fitted than the many younger authors who might desire to do something of the kind. I was prepared for a storm, but such storms one must not shrink from encountering. That would be cowardice. It happened that, just in these days, the present writer had frequent opportunities of conversing with Ibsen, and of hearing from his own lips almost all the views expressed in the above extracts. He was especially emphatic, I remember, 
in protesting against the notion that the opinions expressed by Mrs. Alving or Oswald were to be attributed to himself. He insisted, on the contrary, that Mrs. Alving's views were merely typical of the moral chaos inevitably produced by reaction from the narrow conventionalisms represented by Mandish. With one consent, the leading theatres of the three Scandinavian capitals declined to have anything to do with the play. It was more than eighteen months old before it found its way to the stage at all. In August 1883, it was acted for the first time at Helsingborg, Sweden, by a travelling company under the direction of an eminent Swedish actor, August Lindberg, who himself played Oswald. He took on tour round the principal cities of Scandinavia, playing it, among the rest, at a minor theatre in Christiania. It happened that the boards of the Christianian theatre were at the same time occupied by a French farce, and public demonstrations of protests were made against the managerical policy which gave Tete de Lunette the preference over Yengangre. Gradually the prejudice against the play broke down. Already in autumn of 1883 it was produced at the Royal Dramatiska Theatre in Stockholm. When the new national theatre was opened in Christiania in 1899, Yengangre found an early place in its repertory and even the Royal Theatre in Copenhagen has since opened its doors to the tragedy. Not until April 1886 was Gespenster acted in Germany, and then only at a private performance, at the Stadt Theatre, Orsberg, the poet himself being present. In the following winter it was acted at the famous court theatre at Meningen, again in the presence of the poet. The first private performance in Berlin took place on January ninth, eighteen eighty seven, at the Residence Theatre, and when the Free Bühne, founded on the model of the Paris Theatre Libre, began its operations two years later, September twenty-ninth, eighteen eighty nine, Gespenster was the first play that it produced. The Freie Bühne gave the initial impulse to the whole modern movement which has given Germany a new dramatic literature, and the leaders of the movement, whether authors or critics, were one and all ardent disciples of Ibsen, who regarded Gespenster as his typical masterpiece. In Germany, then, the play certainly did, in Ibsen's own words, move some boundary posts. The Prussian censorship presently withdrew its veto, and on November 27, 1894, the two leading literary theatres of Berlin, the Deutsches Theatre and the Lessing Theatre, gave simultaneously performances of the tragedy. Everywhere in Germany and Austria it is now freely performed, but it is naturally one of the least popular of Ibsen's play. It was with La Ravenance that Ibsen made his first appearance on the French stage. The play was produced by the Théâtre Libre at the Théâtre des Menus Plaisirs on May 22, 1890. Here again it became the watchword of the new school of authors and critics, and aroused a good deal of opposition among the old school. But the most hostile French criticisms were moderations itself compared with the torrents of abuse which were poured upon ghosts by the journalists of London when, on March 13, 1891, the independent theatre, under the direction of Mr. J. T. Grain, gave a private performance of the play at the Royal Theatre, Soho. I have elsewhere 
Note, see The Mausoleum of Ibsen, Fortnight Review, August 1893. See also Mr. Bernard Shaw's Quintess of Ibsenism, page 89, and my introduction to ghosts in the single volume edition. End note. Placed upon the record some of the amazing feats of vituperation achieved of the critics, and will not here recall them. It is sufficient to say that if the play had been a tenth part as nauseous as the epithets hurled at it and its author, the censor's veto would have been amply justified. That veto is still, 1906, in force. England enjoys the proud distinction of being the one country in the world where ghosts may not be publicly acted. In the United States, the first performance of the play in English took place at the Berkeley Lyceum, New York City, on January 5, 1894. The production was described by Mr. W. D. Howells as a great theatrical event, the very greatest I have ever known. Other leading men of letters were equally impressed by it. Five years later, a second production took place at the Carnegie Lyceum, and an adventurous manager has even taken the play on tour in the United States. The Italian version of the tragedy, Glispetri, has ever since 1892 taken a prominent place in the repertory of the great actors Saccon and Novelli, who have acted it not only throughout Italy, but in Austria, Germany, Russia, and South America. In an interview published immediately after Ibsen's death, Björnstjerne Björnsson questioned as to what he held to be his brother-poet's greatest work, replied, without a moment's hesitation, Jengangre. This dictum can scarcely, I think, be accepted without some qualification. Even confining our attention to the modern place, and leaving out the comparison the pretenders, Brand, and Per Gynt, we can scarcely call ghosts Ibsen's richest or most human play, and certainly not his profoundest or most poetical. If some omnipotent censorship decreed the annihilation of all his work save one, few people, I imagine, would vote that that one should be ghosts. Even if half a dozen works were to be saved from the wreck, I doubt whether I, for my part, would include ghosts in the list. It is, in my judgment, a little bare, hard, austere. It is the first work in which Ibsen applies his new technical method, evolved, as I have suggested, during the composition of A Doll's House, and he applies it with something of a fanaticism. He is under the sway of a prosaic ideal, confessed in the phrase, my object was to make the reader feel that he was going through a piece of real experience, and he is putting some constraint upon the poet within him. The action moves a little stiffly, and all in one rhythm. It lacks variety and suppleness. Moreover, the play affords some slight excuse for the criticism which persists in regarding Ibsen as a preacher rather than as a creator, an author who cares more for ideas and doctrines than for human beings. Though Mrs. Alving, Engstrand, and Regina are rounded and breathing characters, it cannot be denied that Mandusch strikes one as a clerical type rather than an individual, while even Oswald might not quite unfairly be described as simply and solely his father's son, an object lesson in heredity. We cannot be said to know him, individually or intimately, as we know Helmer or Stockmann, Jalmar Ekdal or Gregor Schwerle. 
Then again, there are one or two curious flaws in the play. The question whether Oswald's case is one which actually presents itself in the medical books seems to me a very trifling moment. It is typically true, even if it be not true in detail. The suddenness of the catastrophe may possibly be exaggerated. Its premonitions and even its essential nature may be misdescribed. On the other hand, I conceive it probable that the poet had documents to found upon which may be unknown to his critics. I have never taken any pains to satisfy myself upon the point, which seemed to me quite immaterial. There is not the slightest doubt that the life-history of Captain Alving may, and often does, entail upon posterity consequences quite as tragic as those which ensue in Oswald's case, and far more wide-spreading. That being so, the artistic justification of the poet's presentment of the case is certainly not dependent on its absolute scientific accuracy. The flaws above alluded to are of another nature. One of them is the prominence given to the fact that the asylum is uninsured. No doubt there is some symbolical purport in the circumstance, but I cannot think that it is either sufficiently clear or sufficiently important to justify the emphasis thrown upon it at the end of the second act. Another dubious point is Oswald's argument in the first act as to the expressiveness of marriage, as compared with free union. Since the parties to free union, as he describes it, accept all the responsibilities of marriage, and only pretermit the ceremony, the difference of expense, one would suppose, must be neither more nor less than the actual marriage fee. I have never seen this remark of Oswald's adequately explained, either as a matter of economic fact, or as a trait of character. Another blemish of somewhat greater moment is the inconceivable facility in which, in the third act, Mandersh suffers himself to be victimized by Engstrand. All these little things, taken together, detract, as it seems to me, from the artistic completeness of the play, and impair its claim to rank as the poet's masterpiece. Even in prose drama, his greatest and most consummate achievements were yet to come. Must we then wholly descend from Björnson's judgment? I think not. In a historical, if not an aesthetic sense, Ghosts may well rank as Ibsen's greatest work. It was the play which first gave the full measure of his technical and spiritual originality and daring. It has done far more than any other of his plays to move boundary posts. It has advanced the frontiers of dramatic art and implanted new ideas, both technical and intellectual, in the minds of a whole generation of playwrights. It ranks with Hernani and La Dame aux Camélias among the epoch-making plays of the nineteenth century, while in point of essential originality it towers above them. We cannot, I think, get nearer to the truth than Georg Brandes did in the above-quoted phrase from his first notice of the play, describing it as not, perhaps, the poet's greatest work, but certainly his noblest deed. In another essay, Brandes has pointed to it with equal justice as marking Ibsen's final breach with his early, one might almost say his, hereditary romanticism. He here becomes, at last, the most modern of the moderns. This, I am convinced, says the Danish critic, is his imperishable glory, and will give lasting life to his works. End of Introduction